Well, good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you all. If you're visiting with us, whether online or in person, we're delighted that you're here. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Cam Colquitt. My wife, Catherine, and our two girls, Joya, who's four, and Myra, who's two, moved here about two years ago. And I serve as the director of Rivermont's college ministry, Campus Outreach. Campus Outreach serves both as a mission of Rivermont as well as a ministry to Rivermont. As a missional extension of this church, myself and our staff team of 12 share the gospel with and seek to disciple college students in this region. And as a ministry to Rivermont, we care for and invest in the college-age students here in Rivermont's body. And as you can imagine, this time of year, ministry is revving up, and so we deeply covet your prayers as we seek to fulfill this commission of being both a ministry to this church and a mission of this church. And brothers and sisters, it's a great privilege for me to preach God's word to you this morning as we near the end of our summer series on discipleship. We'll read our text in just a moment, but if you would just join me in a brief word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you collectively now, joining our hearts and our minds and our lives in humble worship and silence before you. We are eager, Father, to hear your voice speak forth from heaven through your word. So we pray now that as we open your word and consider these glorious, timeless truths that you, triune God, would partner this word with your Holy Spirit, that your word would go deep into the hearts of your people, that fruit would be born to the praise and honor and glory of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder how you would complete the following sentence. I have no greater joy than when dot, dot, dot. For me, it probably goes something like this. I have no greater joy than when I take that first sip of a great vanilla latte. I have no greater joy than when I'm on the floor, rolling around, tickling, being silly, and laughing with my two little girls. I have no greater joy than when my Georgia Bulldogs are running out the clock on a Saturday afternoon for another win in the SEC. I wonder how you would complete that sentence, I have no greater joy than when. And I wonder if you can relate to the Apostle John. Consider John's words in 3 John verse 4. You'll find this in the the Bible in your pew on page 1026. John writes in this short letter, in brief verse, these words. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. For the parents and grandparents among us, I imagine that verse connects with you. And as acutely as a parent or a grandparent might understand that feeling, that joy, you don't have to be a parent or a grandparent, have children or grandchildren, to taste this for yourself or to have tasted this. Claudia immigrated to America as a young girl in 1943. She and her mother fled Havana for New York City. Eventually, they both found jobs as maids. She never married nor bore children. But she became the abuela, which means grandmother, of her neighborhood. See, it was normal in this neighborhood for both parents to work. 
And perhaps even more common than that for children to have only one parent. Claudia filled that void. The children in the neighborhood went to her house after school to do homework. The woman, Claudia, who was never educated, struggled with English, and could barely write her name, excuse me, could barely write her name, helped shape the trajectories of little boys and girls who would attend Ivy League schools, build businesses, and save communities. The great joy of Claudia's life was this small group of children. And these children discovered something after her death that showed them the sort of joy that she took in being their abuela. Among her belongings, they found a folder of years-old memorabilia. It contained handwritten notes that these children had written on scraps of paper that she'd preserved over the years, high school graduation programs, and pictures of the children with their parents as they drove off to college. She kept it all. Friends, Claudia tasted what John articulates. There is no greater joy than to invest in the life of another. Claudia is a fictional character in a musical-turned-movie, but her story rings true. Friends, to state it simply, there is nothing better than investing in someone else's life, especially to the glory of God. John's words in 3 John 4 capture the spiritual reality depicted in Claudia's story. There is no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The Bible's term for this process about which John speaks, is life-on-life discipleship. Life-on-life discipleship. Jesus modeled this. We know that Jesus died and rose again in order to ransom people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And yet at the time of Jesus' ascension into heaven, there is a group of somewhere between 12 to 120 people who followed him closely. How was it that Jesus was planning to reach the nations of the world? The answer we find is one life at a time. The many would be reached through the few. John's words are merely an echo of Jesus' life. Friends, there is no greater mission and no greater joy than to see children, both biological children and spiritual children, walking in the truth. Now you might be thinking, how do I know that this sort of thing is for me? Abuela Claudia was a retired single woman. Now, I imagine that might represent some of us, but certainly not all of us. And what about Jesus? I mean, he is the son of God, after all. Not only that, but Jesus was a single traveling rabbi whose exclusive focus was to invest in a young group of students and teach the Bible to crowds of people. But what about you? Is it possible for you to taste this joy to which Claudia, John, and Jesus testify? Is life-on-life discipleship really something for you that God calls you into? I want to show you by tracing the storyline of the Bible that it is. 3 John 4 is a launching pad into the trajectory, the storyline of Scripture. Why make disciples? That's the question we're considering this morning. The storyline of the Bible offers three answers. First of all, God made us to make disciples. God made us. Second, God redeemed us. God saved us to make disciples. God saved us for this. He redeemed us for this. And finally, it works. Disciple-making works. Life-on-life discipleship works. First of all, God made us to make disciples. 
Consider a portion of Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's command in verse 28 to Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it is often referred to as the cultural mandate. In the cultural mandate, God is inviting and instructing our first parents, the first humans, Adam and Eve, to build a culture on this world that would testify to the glory of God. And how are they to do this? The answer we find is by bearing and nurturing children. In other words, a global culture that testifies to the glory of God would be built one life at a time. Friends, God made us to invest in the lives of others. This is fundamental to what it means to be a human. Why is God so intent on these first humans multiplying and filling the earth with his image? The language in verses 26 and 27 give us a clue. If you'll scan back to verse 26, if you're there, listen once again. The text says this. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. What does this mean that God creates humans in his own image and likeness? When the culture and context in which Moses, the author, wrote Genesis, it was important to distinguish boundaries between kingdoms. How did these ancient kings clarify the extent to which their dominion extended? The answer was often they built images. These images are basically statues. Sometimes these were statues of the king himself. More often, they were images of the gods that the kingdom worshipped. Do you see, friends, the significance of Genesis 1, 26 through 28? God, the supreme king, is declaring that his intention in creation is that his divine image would spread as far as his dominion extends to the ends of the earth. And rather than building statues to mark out his territory and image, he creates people. It puts his image in them that they would scatter and fill the earth with his glory. Though humanity started with two people in a garden, God intended that these humans and all who follow would multiply, spread, and fill the earth with his glory in their own lives. God made us for this, to invest our lives in the lives of others for his glory. This is one of the reasons that we find it so deeply fulfilling to teach, to train, and to shape the trajectory of another's life under our tutelage. But humanity's fall into sin seems to compromise this mission. Consider this tension. How can God's purposes to fill the earth with his glory through people bearing his image come to pass if his image bearers are marred and stained by sin? God himself addresses this problem just five chapters later in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6, 5 reads this way. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth 
and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God sends a worldwide flood to execute his judgment on sin and to rid, to purge the world of sin. Almost as soon as Noah and his progeny step off the boat, God reaffirms the cultural mandate with them in Genesis 9-1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That language leaves us wondering whether perhaps the presence of sin may have been washed away in the waters of judgment. Maybe the human race can start anew now with Noah and his descendants. Are God's purposes to fill the earth with his glory possible once again by way of the cultural mandate on the other side of the flood? We find out quickly that the answer is no. Noah and his sons commit horrible acts of drunkenness and immorality just later in that chapter. The point of that story is this. The presence of sin is in too deep. The waters of the flood couldn't wash it away. It's coursing through the veins of humanity. All humans, without exception, are plagued, fatally infected by sin. And the result is this, that rather than pointing upward to God, we turn inward on ourselves. God's image in us becomes so marred and distorted that though it's there, it's barely distinguishable. And yet, God promises in Habakkuk 2.14 that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How is God going to do this? One day, he would send another man. This man would succeed where Adam had failed. This man's blood was a different sort of blood. Coursing through his veins was truly human blood as the seed of Mary, and yet holy sinless blood as the Son of God. And stunningly, it is this man's spotless blood that is shed on a Roman cross. This man's resurrection from the dead is the verification from heaven that his blood indeed was spotless and that his sacrifice indeed was effectual and accepted. Brothers and sisters, I am speaking about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the curse that you and I deserved because of our broken covenant with our Creator fell down upon him, our glorious Redeemer. Jesus was the human that deep down you and I know we never could be, and yet were meant to be. This Jesus substituted himself for you and for me. And the message of the gospel is that if anybody turns from their sin and trusts in this Jesus, he or she is no longer under God's condemnation and wrath because of their sin, but rather received into God's favor. Through Jesus, we can be reconciled to God. Isn't that a glorious gospel worth singing about and praying and praising? But there's more. What is Jesus doing in the people whom he has reconciled to God? Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 4, verse 24. Paul commands the Ephesian believers and by extension us, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you know what God's doing? In Jesus, God is recreating a new humanity 
who bears his image and likeness once again. As men and women, boys and girls, are converted to Jesus Christ and conformed to his image, God's glory is spreading and filling the earth just as he intended in and through his people, in and through his church. And this is happening not only or even mainly through physical procreation, as in Genesis 1, but rather through spiritual multiplication, through life-on-life discipleship. God redeemed us. God saved us to make disciples. God saved us to make disciples. This is the purpose for which we are redeemed, that God would restore his image in us and use us to restore his image in the lives of others. Listen to Jesus' language in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. This passage is often referred to as the Great Commission. And you'll notice a striking resemblance to the language from the cultural mandate in Genesis 1. Verse 19, Jesus stands before his first followers, this new humanity, and he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What we see in this text is that Jesus is the spiritual father of a new humanity. He's the new Adam of a new race. And in Jesus, God is recreating a new people who truly bear the image of God. And Jesus intends for the members of this new race, the people in this new people, just as in Genesis 1, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with his glory. Not only through bearing and nurturing biological children, but also, perhaps even mainly, through bearing and nurturing spiritual children. The Great Commission is binding for every Christian. God made us and God saved us for life-on-life discipleship, to make disciples. Now, it's worth noting that we do need corporate structures to accomplish the Great Commission. We're speaking this morning about personal disciple-making, life-on-life discipleship. But disciple-making doesn't just take place in one-on-one contexts. Disciples are made in gatherings like this, as God's word is preached, sung, prayed, and seen. Sunday school classes, small groups, conferences, retreats, and many more corporate contexts facilitate the process of making disciples. And these contexts are necessary But the message of Scripture, the storyline of the Bible, speaks powerfully that disciples don't get made solely because of corporate structures and context. In other words, you can't just put a person into a machine intended for discipleship and out on the other side comes a disciple. There is simply no substitute for life-on-life discipleship. Personalized, affectionate, consistent investment in individuals' lives. Jesus' first followers understood this. The Apostle Paul discipled Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, he commands Timothy, who he calls his son in the faith, to entrust the things that Paul had taught him into the lives of faithful men who would be able to teach others also. The pattern of the Christian church is an unending chain 
of individual Christians personally depositing, investing the image and gospel of Jesus Christ into the lives of others. That baton has been passed down through the ages of history from Jesus himself to his first followers, to countless others, and finally, to you and to me. To whom will we pass it on? In whom can we multiply Christ's image and gospel that this earth might be filled with the glory of our great God and King? God made us for this, and God saved us for this. And finally, it works. Life-on-life discipleship works. Why take the time at the end of this sermon to assure you that it works? Because often, it feels like it doesn't. Life-on-life discipleship is hard. It's slow. Growth takes time. Our instinct is to prefer quick fixes, crowds of thousands, conversions in the hundreds. But the lifeblood of the church growing and God's glory spreading is in the small, simple, slow growth of individual Christians investing in individual Christians. It often isn't flashy. Sometimes it's hardly visible. But friends, it works. God is always doing more than we see. I recently received two letters in the mail. They were wedding invitations from two young men that I met in my first two years serving with campus outreach at Radford University. Interestingly and unfortunately, the wedding is on the same day, September 4th, so I have to choose. I remember playing spike ball with Wyatt and asking him about the cross tattoo that I saw on his arm. It was the first day that I went to campus at Radford University. The first year I got there, he was the first person I met. That question opened up a door to talk about the gospel with Wyatt. And I'll never forget a year later when I was spending time with Matt in his dorm room late one night when he asked me this question, how can I know if I'm right with God? Both of those men professed faith in Christ those two years. Both of those men struggled in their walk with God. And much to my disappointment, both of those men shortly after that ended up dropping out and leaving school. I was sad and I was unsure of where they were spiritually. I really, truly didn't know if I'd made a difference. And to be honest with you, I feel this way still to this day, looking back on much of my time serving at Radford. It's incredibly, it was, it still is sometimes incredibly discouraging to wonder if I'd made a difference in my efforts to make disciples. Over the next few years, I lost touch with Wyatt and Matt. This summer, I got to reconnect with each of them. They told me about the incredibly difficult seasons they'd been through in the past six years. And glory to God, they told me of how each of them are still humbly walking with Jesus Christ. Friends, life-on-life discipleship is hard and slow, and oftentimes it feels like nothing's happening, but it is essential, and it works. Jesus himself blows the wind of the Holy Spirit in the sails of people and churches who humbly, slowly, and affectionately make disciples. This is how Jesus will win the nations to himself, one life at a time. This mission is for each of us, and this mission is for all of us.
the way in which we uniquely participate in this mission may be different. We each have different giftings, capacities, and availability. The point of this sermon isn't mainly to say how to participate in this mission, but rather to say that you get to participate in this mission, that we get to. What an incredible privilege it is to do the very thing that the Apostle John described as his greatest joy in life. I have no greater joy than to see that my children are walking in the truth. How can you taste this joy? In whom can you invest? What small step or steps could you take even now to join God in this glorious mission of investing the gospel and image of Jesus Christ into the lives of others, one life at a time. God made us for this. God redeemed us for this. And it works. Let me pray. Father, we worship you that despite our sin, Despite humanity's rebellion against you, despite our very best efforts to seize dominion over your universe, you have created a new humanity in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus. In response to our sin, Father, you wrote yourself into the story. You came to the very world that had rejected you and rebelled against you. Your son did not consider equality with you, did not consider equality with you something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Being found in human likeness, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now you, God, have highly exalted your son and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we, Jesus' people, your new race, your new humanity, recognize that it is the only right response to what Jesus has done to seek to invest in the lives of others that Jesus would get glory. We pray that you would give us power, courage, and humility to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.